I don't know how many of you have ever heard of the Action Bible, but if you haven't, it is basically kind of an older kid slash teenager version, or if you're like me, um, teenager at heart version of, uh, of the Bible and the story of the Bible, but it's done up like a comic book, or I guess graphic novel is the proper terminology these days, okay? But um, the head writer for this was an illustrator for Marvel Comics, and so the pictures are amazing. And my kids really, really love it. Um, we still do most of our family Devo readings out of the good old text-only version. But when we read out of the Action Bible, they have a lot of fun because they're in awe of all of the vivid portrayals of the stories of God. And, and see, I know there are some liberties there, and, and I'm willing to, to take you know, the liberties. I'm not going to harp on the historical accuracy of whether or not Jesus had these cut washboard-like abs like Captain America while he's on the cross or not. Um, I actually think that was post-resurrection, and I am also looking forward to my washboard abs in my glorified body, and I know that you are too, um, so don't deny it. But, but one thing that this rendition that's, that's artistic of the word really reminds me of is just how mighty our God is to save. If you look at the picture behind me, this is from 2 Kings. This is the story in 2 Kings where Elisha and his servant have been surrounded by the armies of Assyria in this little town in the hills, and they're completely surrounded. And, and the servant basically, if you translate the word from Hebrew, it means we're dead. And, and Elisha says, no, we're not. And he says, oh God, please open his eyes to see that those that are with us are greater than those who are against us. And boom. Visions of chariots and horses of fire all around them, surrounding the, the army that's surrounding them. And see, this kind of thing is really good for my imagination because how do you get a grasp on something that is so fantastic as that? You know, I mean, th this at least kind of helps jog my memory a little bit or jog my creativity a little bit so that I can kind of get an idea of what this might have been like. We still, I mean it still goes beyond fathoming, right? The power of God goes beyond any sort of artistic rendition or any sort of even, even image that I can put in my mind of my own sweet imagination is limited. But it helps to have somebody who can do it better than stick figures to help you get a glimpse of it too. So I like that. It is true though, I think, that throughout the Bible, this action movie idea of deliverance gets formed over and over for us, right? The man or woman of God or the people of Israel, they are outmanned and they are outgunned and their backs are against the wall. And here comes God, mighty to save. And the people rejoice and God is the hero. And in one sense, this is a very, very basic truth of our faith. And it should be that when we despair, when it seems hopeless, God's not done yet. God comes to the rescue. I mean, this is the story of the gospel, isn't it? God was not content to sit outside of the human condition and let things just continue the way that they had been. He decided to step into the middle of the story himself. And he takes on flesh and he enters into the conflict and he overcomes through the cross. But, and you knew there was a but coming, right? What do I do when my current circumstances don't seem to match up against that paradigm of deliverance? What, 
what do I do when, when we've had the faith in trial, we have prayed, we've watched earnestly, we are outmanned, we are outgunned, our backs are against the wall, and it, and it doesn't look like God comes to the rescue. The cancer is still there, the spouse still walks out the door, the job is still lost, the depression doesn't lift, that person continues to attack us. Insert problem here, whatever it is. I'm not making light of those problems. Those are deep, 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 deep problems. But big or small, we have, these, we have these crises of deliverance sometimes where we're looking for God to rescue and for God to be mighty to save. He doesn't show up. Or at least it looks like he doesn't show up. What are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to pray when we've built this faith on the idea that the Lord saves? We've even put our trust in one whose name means the Lord saves. And it looks like he's not saving anything right now. How do we keep praying this prayer of deliver us from evil over and over again while the evil just seems to keep hanging around and we're stuck in the middle of it. How do we live this particular prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Not just to pray it, but how does a disciple of Jesus live this prayer? In order to answer that first, I think we need to step back and take a look at the prayer as a whole. As we're finishing this series on living out the Lord's Prayer this week, and finishing with this last piece, I think by now when we look at the entire prayer, you can see that it's a progression. Jesus makes a progression out of this prayer. It stacks up piece by piece into a bigger picture. These statements and petitions, they aren't just things that sit by themselves. They connect to each other. They depend on each other. They build on each other. Specifically, the fact is that I can't pray the second half of this prayer that petitions God for things and really understand what it is I'm asking of him until my reality has become anchored in the first two statements of this prayer. The goal that everything that I am is to glorify the name of God and to be an agent of his kingdom reality in everything around me. If my life's not anchored in those things... I will not understand what I am praying when I ask God to give me my daily bread or when I ask him to help me to forgive as I have been forgiven or when I ask him to lead me not into temptation but deliver me from evil, okay? When we live for the love and the glory of God and we live for the will of God, then we can truly live for the care of God alone in our material needs rather than trying to kind of, you know, work on one hand with, you know, putting our faith in him and then the other hand on kind of taking care of things for when he doesn't come through. And we can finally live for the reconciliation of God in our relationships and we can trust that he is going to give us the ability to engage in a lifestyle of forgiveness as we also have been forgiven. And we see it in its proper perspective, how much we have been forgiven versus how little we must forgive. And then finally, we can live for the transformation and the deliverance of God in our struggle against sin. And none of this is me-centric, you understand? This is not a me-rooted prayer. This is an our-rooted prayer. 
you and me, our families, our churches, our community in greater Victoria, our country, our world. God has had us imagine this life of prayer in all of these different realms. And what that could look like, not just in my life personally, but in my family. Not just in my family, but in this church. Not just in this church, but in this community. Not just in this community, but in this country and in this world. What does it look like? God gives us the freedom to imagine a world where this prayer gets lived on all of those scales. So when we look at this idea of lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, what are we really asking God here? What is this petition really about? I believe it's that we're asking for God to give us a collective vision and action plan as to what his deliverance looks like when our world and our hearts become a battlefield between evil and the kingdom of God. The thing between the reality that the world does not always look like your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, whether that's my personal life or the global world around me, and the reality that the kingdom is moving forward and that the kingdom is coming and that there is a day when those two things will look alike. What we're praying for this is we're praying for vision and we're praying for action. We're asking God to open us up to his viewpoint, to open up and see his vantage point on all this, and to see things the way that he does. And that's a good thing, because right off the bat, if I'm looking at asking God to lead me not into temptation, I already have some questions, because it seems pretty clear from looking at the first chapter of James. If I look at James 1, 13 and 15, it says pretty clearly, God doesn't tempt anybody. It's my own desires that are being fanned up by a spiritual adversary to try and kill me off by, by way of my sinfulness. And James also tells me earlier in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 1 that I should actually rejoice when I suffer and when I am tempted and when I face trial because it's a chance for my faith to endure and to grow. And moreover, I see in the Gospels that Jesus is allowed times of temptation in the wilderness before he starts his ministry... And later in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is allowed to be tempted and, and, and basically led into that almost before his death. So why on earth would Jesus, whom the writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way that we are in order to be a perfect intercessor for us with God, why would he want me to pray to God about not being led into temptation? Okay, first off, I think the answer starts in understanding this word temptation. Otherwise, it seems a little bit contradictory. See, the reality is, is that to be a human is to be tempted daily. And before the work of Christ in us, that temptation's effect was to ensnare me in sin and to lead me to death. But, what's the point of temptation now that I am alive again in Christ? In the New Testament, it seems that the verb used for temptation has the characteristic of not so much representing trying to seduce us into sin anymore, but it's instead to test, to increase the resolve and the strength of the disciple. In fact, 
In fact, in the Hebrew word, there's really no difference between temptation and test and trial. It's all the same word. It's all in how you look at it. Is this thing that's put in my path designed to seduce me into sin? Or is this thing that's put in my path designed to allow Christ to flourish in me and make a better disciple out of me? Sometimes it really is all about a different point of view. And no, I didn't set Art up for that. He did that all by himself. All right? But that's critical for us to see here. Okay? Even still, if God isn't tempting, then it's not as though God is making us jump through a bunch of flaming hoops in order to prove our loyalty. That's not what we're talking about here. Instead, God is redeeming even the act of temptation from something that's destructive to something that's formative. God's not saying, hey, if you really love me, you'll jump through all these trials. He's saying, you know, this thing that you used to see that was killing you, now it is a chance for my glory and my grace to be displayed in your weakness. Which way would you like to go with this? Because I can redeem that for you. Because I can change that for you. Because I can allow my power to be displayed in your weakness now. I can do that for you. What do you want to do? Do you want to look at it as just temptation again? Or do you want to look at it as something greater? And I think the beginning of the lead us not into temptation prayer starts when we start saying, Lord, lead me into something greater with this, into a greater understanding, into a greater reality with this, where it is not just something that is messing with me again, but now it becomes a chance for your power to be displayed out of my weakness. That changes everything about temptation, church. Changes everything about it. So don't lead me into a place where I see this as temptation anymore, Lord. Lead me into a place where I see this as a place where your power is being made perfect in my weakness. Just in the same way as when Jesus is at his weakest, when he is starving out in the wilderness, and when he is on his knees, like sweating drops of blood in the garden, that is when he is at his most powerful for me. I don't know about you. I mean, I, yes, I know he is powerful when he comes out of the tomb. But when he is the most meaningfully powerful to me is when he's on his knees going like, I don't want to do this. But by your spirit and by your strength, your will be done, not mine. And then he sets his face toward the cross and he doesn't look back. And I love that about him. Because if the spirit that empowered him to do it, let his let God's glory be displayed that perfectly in Christ, then there's even just a piece of that glory that can be displayed in me when I'm willing to do the same thing and I'm willing to set my face toward the temptation and say, I will let your power be displayed in my weakness here. And now it's not something that's killing me anymore. It's actually something that's bringing me more to life. It's amazing, right? But see... Christ ties these two things together. And even when I say, God, grant me the strength that when temptation comes to resist it, I can be redeemed in it and I can grow stronger. That resistance can't happen when I'm on my own. And that's why Christ ties these two things together. This lead us, keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil together. He wants us to see that both requests are tied to the idea of God's presence being among us. 
God's presence is what allows me to reimagine temptation as a redeeming thing as opposed to a, a destroying thing. God's presence is also what deliverance is really all about. The request gets moved more of to God when I do go through trial or suffering or temptation or the like. Don't leave me alone out there by myself. Be with me. Shepherd me. Deliver me from the evil that I go through in these times. See, I've often thought that Israel's idea of deliverance really, really had to change significantly over the years between the time of coming up out of Egypt and when Jesus was walking among them in Palestine. If you think about it, there always seems to be this cycle or this, this wave pattern in Israel's history of a relationship with God. And the book of Judges is probably the best example. If you, you can read the entire book of Judges and it goes in a circle, almost, right? Israel falls away from God. They get led into captivity and bondage. And, you know, people come in and mess with them. They get oppressed. They cry out to God. God shows up. In the form of, of a judge, you know, in a form of a person, you know, that he empowers with his spirit to save them. They are freed. They are redeemed. They live in good relationship. And then they start to slide off. And we go back around. The, you know, it's, it's almost like a loop-to-loop roller coaster again, right? That was a good visual, by the way. It was his Old Testament theology class. He showed us a really cool roller coaster O Exodus that he drew up, which was kind of cool. I'm glad they make you do creative things like that rather than just boring papers like you have to do in graduate school. Um, it's not near as fun. Um, but, but you can just keep going around that circle. But what happens when that circular action gets broken? What happens when you get to the exile and they're kind of going, well, I know that we've sinned, but we'll turn our hearts back to the Lord and he'll be mighty to save again. And why are we being carried off into Babylon? What's going on? All of a sudden, this idea of deliverance has to change for them because what they saw deliverance as was God pulling them up and out of their circumstance. Evidently, I need a little more room to move this morning, so I will. Okay. And and they go with their captors, and this really challenges this whole, like, action Bible deliverance concept, right? I imagine they had to look back at the 23rd Psalm a bit differently after that, and they saw new meaning of this, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. And likewise, our, pa- our reading this morning seems to show a different understanding of what deliverance really is in the words of Isaiah. When you pass through the deep waters, when you pass through the fires of oppression in life, you will come out the other side and not be drowned or consumed. Why? Because I am with you. That's the key phrase. That doesn't mean you don't get wet. That doesn't mean you don't get singed. That means you come through the other side of it. Why? Because I am with you. And then there are those miraculous times where you come through it and you've walked on dry ground the whole day and you go, like, I have no idea how that happened, but you're awesome. And, and that just makes those times even better. But is deliverance so much about the action that is occurring, or is it about the presence of the one who delivers? For the Jew who's listening to Jesus' words about deliverance in this prayer, and I think for you and I, 
there was both a sense of the immediate evil that we are in, whatever that may be. For them, it was the occupation or the sin or the distress or the pain of the day. But as well, this distress that would come before the end of all things, when God was going to make things right once and for all. And, it, and it, like I said, it's not so different for us now. We both have this sense of deliverance being about where we are right now and needing God to be where we are right now, and yet also with deliverance being about getting us to that inevitable day when God finishes what he started in you and I in Christ. And God's deliverance doesn't necessarily pull us up and out of our temptations or our trials or those situations or the pain that we feel as much as it guides us through those things to that day from this day. And one very vivid illustration that I have of this is something a friend of mine in Tulsa, Oklahoma experienced a few years back. He and his daughter regularly go on dates together. And back in December of 2008, they went to see a concert featuring Christian singer and songwriter Stephen Curtis Chapman. And I don't know how many of you know, this, know his story and the story of his family, but um, they had three kids, they have three kids of their own, and they decided that they were going to start adopting, and they ended up adopting three, three girls from China at different times, okay? Um, and, and what he related to me from this experience really put flesh and bones on this idea of understanding how to pray and live this idea of deliverance through tragedy or trial or temptation in life. And I'm kind of using his words a little bit. He said, I had really high expectations of what, I was gonna ha- of what was going to happen when Steve Curtis Chapman starts leading the worship at this concert that we're going to go see. Because, and when he, he begins singing this first song, I could not believe my ears. He begins by singing, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you have to understand how hard it is for him to, how hard I think it is for him to lead that song because this concert that we're at is five months to the day after he lost his five-year-old adopted daughter, Maria. May 21st of 2008, he gets a call. You need to drop everything. You need to come to Vanderbilt Children's Hospital right now. One of their teenage sons is coming into the driveway after school. And little Maria runs out to greet him. And they don't see each other in time. And he runs her over. It's unthinkable. And as he's heading to the hospital, he gets another call. Hurry, we don't think she's going to make it. And she passes away on the way to the hospital. And, th- and this is the words of my friend. Now, I'm thinking ahead of him in the lyrics to this song, and I'm like, no, he can't, there's no way. There's no way that five months after this, he's going to be able to sing this. He, there's, there's no way that he's going to be able to sing, you give and take away, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. There's no way. There is no way. But he does. And all the folks in the room are tearing up, but he's just getting started because the next song is the one that he wrote about her. Um, it is called Cinderella, and it is like taking the place of like the Butterfly Kisses song for every dad who's ever had a daughter kind of thing, right? And, and he says, he said, and now we're not just crying, we're all bawling. As he sings about her, I will dance with Cinderella while she is still in my arms because I know something the prince never knew. I will dance with her, and I won't miss a single song because one day soon the clock will strike midnight and she will be gone. He writes this not knowing how quickly the clock is going to strike, but he writes it with some foreknowledge. 
And at this point, my friend says, I'm crying and I'm laughing at the same time because I am bewildered. I, he's got to be doing something with it. He's got to do something with it, but I don't know what he's going to do with it. And then as he finishes, he asks the question that is on everyone's mind. He says, how can I sing this? How can I sing these songs? He says, is it denial? Is it some form of spiritual catharsis? How can, how can I do this? And this is where the idea of deliverance really hits home for me in his words. He says, I'll tell you how I do this. Because by faith now, I live in two places. I live in this day. I live in this day where Maria's gone, and it appears that tragedy reigns. But you know what? I also live in another day. I live in another day, and that day when tragedy won't have a place anymore, and I will dance with Maria again in the light of the throne of God. And I can't get through this day without that day. But in fact, it's bigger than that because of the assurance that I have that that day is real. Now this day is not just something that I try to get through or survive in. This day is now something I can rejoice and praise in because every day God is delivering me one day closer to that day. Even if it doesn't look like anything has changed in this day, I am now one step closer to that day. And I choose to see that day. And I choose to see that I get to live in two places. Not just where I am, but where God is taking me. And I'm amazed when I hear that. I'm not, not just at his faith, but I am amazed that that reality can exist for us. I am amazed that that reality can exist for us. See, when we pray for God to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, I believe as a disciple, this is what we're praying. Abba, Father, please help me to live in a place called deliverance. A place that is about living both here in this day and there in that day. Living in two places at once. A kingdom that is near and is here, but is also coming and is being revealed as we go on until the time where it's going to be fully revealed. See, when we live this prayer, different deliverance becomes a place that we exist in the here and there where we're pressed in but not crushed, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not knocked out as the temptations and the tests and the tragedy of life push in Paul says we are afforded the opportunity to be filled with God's vision to see the truth and we are also filled with his presence that becomes a testimony not just to us but to those around us. And we see the truth that every day is getting us a little closer. It's closing the gap between this day and that day. Which to us, looking with our human eyes, that road stretches out as far as I can see and I cannot see the end. But when I look at that through God's eyes, oh my gosh, that gap is so small, right? The gap between this day and that day is so small. And what it drives me to do is not only to not despair in this day, but it also drives me to make the most of this day because this day really isn't that far from that day. 
If it seems like forever until that day, I will languish in this day. If it seems like it's just a little bit of time between this day and that day, I'm going to do everything I can to push forward toward that day. And I'm going to rejoice that that day is coming closer every day. It's all a matter of perspective. Instead of languishing, we become shepherded by the very presence of God through these things. And what was our punishment or what was our penalty or what was something that was killing us now becomes our glory in Christ. Because God who is with us reminds us that when the water is over our heads and when the flames are all around us, they will not drown, they will not consume. They will be redeemed in order to wash and refine us instead if we hold fast to living in this place called deliverance, this place where his presence is connecting this day and that day. That's a really hard prayer to pray. Much less live, church. I realize that. I mean, we can talk a good game from the pulpit, but let's, let's be honest. What I'm asking you to do is very, very difficult. What, I mean, from human standards, it is impossible without the Spirit of God. To be able to exist in two places. The only way that I know how to pray it with any kind of conviction is because of what is tacked on at the end of the prayer. And we've been saving this to the very end of the series. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I agree. Amen. I believe. Amen. Let it be so. We don't live for the transformation and the deliverance of God for our sake. We live for it for his sake. He's the hero of the story. He's the hero of the story, not me. And that changes everything. Because now the hope that we have is a testament to his power to deliver us both out of and through the evil that comes out of. It, and it's for His glory. Church, today I want you more than anything to be assured that no matter the evil that assaults you today, you have a deliverer. And He is mighty to save you. That He has created a hope for you that cannot be shaken. And that's what we're going to be celebrating. I mean, we're, we're starting Advent season this next week. And I'm excited because that's what we're going to be exploring that hope is still on the move. That the hope of Christ is still on the way for you and me. It is still drawing near. Maybe you need to embrace the truth of that hope again today. Or maybe you need to pray with someone or seek out myself or another church leader and pray together for the hope of that deliverance again. Uh, maybe you kind of lost the plot and you don't see God guiding you through this stuff anymore. And we want to reassure you that the hope of his deliverance is real. And it is moving. And it is for you. It is available to you for his glory, for his sake. I don't know, maybe you realize you've been looking for that quick up and out deliverance. Deliverance up and out of your circumstances rather than deliver th deliverance through. Because you've been looking at it for your sake. Instead of seeking the deliverer for his sake. I want you to be reassured that when you seek him, and when you seek that deliverance, you will find him. 
whatever it is you need, let's respond to the hope that we have been given now. As we stand and as we worship, as we come to the table of grace and we, we are reassured that, that what we hope for will be reality in Christ. That that day is not just some far off fancy, it is reality that is moving forward. As we come to those, let us be empowered, let us be encouraged, let us be reassured that the one who is promised is faithful and is mighty to save. Let's stand and let's sing.